The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, um, so you can follow along in your outlines. Uh, basically, John 17 begins with Jesus on the mount, mountain of transfiguration. I love uh, that we know it was uh, Mount Hermon, we believe Mount Hermon, which is as tall as the mountains in Colorado, over 9,000 feet high. And Jesus brought only three disciples, Peter, James, and John, kind of in inner circle to the top of the mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. His true identity was seen. He, his face shining like the sun, his clothing like lightning, but not in a flash, burning. And the father speaking, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Then he comes down the mountain with the three and the nine who are left at the bottom have a man that comes and he has a, uh, there's his father that says, my son, my, he's got this disease or epilepsy, um, shaking and he's violently thrown into water and fire and, and, and he was demonically possessed. So we talked about deliverance. And the, the last thing that Jesus said is that some do not come out but by what? Prayer and fasting. That's for all of us. We need to know that. So we pick up where we left off now in verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, so they're still up north around the shores of Galilee where Jesus' headquarters was uh, around the city of, or village of Capernaum. But Jesus said to them plainly, directly, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. I want you to notice their response. I, I believe this is the uh, second, maybe even the third time that Jesus has been preparing them about what is to happen. There, we're at a turning point as we come to the close of Matthew 17. When we get to chapter 18, we're, we're now launching into the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. His ministry was approximately three years and a half. And so these, but the last six months are all leading to that final uh, triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and, and then the story of the cross and the resurrection. As Jesus enters these last six months of ministry, he spends less and less time with the multitudes who have been following him for obvious reasons, all the miracles and multiplications of food and bread and deliverances and healings and resurrections. But he stops dealing with the multitude and he really begins to focus in on the disciples, spending more and more time with the disciples. And, you know, I believe that we are entering into, I don't know if it's six months, but we, the church and history, prophetically, we're entering into the last days of the last days. So there is a focus that God is wanting, uh, you know, he, he deals with the world in one way and the multitudes because he loves them and we, we need to fulfill the great commission and bring the whole gospel to the whole world. But there is a, the Holy Spirit is is really wanting unity. This is not just, you know, our word for Maranatha, but this is a word that I am now hearing. The church around the world is, is hearing the same thing. In fact, when I found out that there's this other group, you know, called Hope for California that are also praying and fasting for 40 days, 
Their theme scripture was Psalm 133, the very same scripture that I gave here. That's the Holy Spirit. He's wanting to focus on us who are his disciples to prepare us for the future. And what he doesn't want, here, here the disciples only focused on when he said, I'm going to be betrayed and killed. And therefore they responded emotionally. They were really upset and worried. They ignored, did not hear, did not focus on, did not fully receive. They didn't grasp how he said it's all going to end. And it's going to end with victory. It ends with resurrection. It ends with him defeating the devil, death, sin, and everything for all time and eternity. So I want you to know this, because a lot of people, look, our generation, especially the younger, the next generation, millennials. So millennials, let me talk to you for just a second. There are many of them that, look, my generation was raised in a lot of prophetic things and kind of following it, excited about it, and then the youngers are not maybe so much or whatever because sometimes it's been wrongly emphasized all the bad things that are going to happen. Have you read the book of Revelation? A lot of crazy stuff happens. But that is a short-sighted approach, not unlike the disciples, to only focus on betrayal and rejection, and then I'm going to be crucified, and, you know, there's going to be, you know, plagues and all of this kind of stuff. No, that's not the focus. The focus is on the end. The focus is on, I'm telling you on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. Focus on that. We are going to be victorious. In the end of the book of Revelation, it says the king comes. His glory comes. His power from heaven is manifest upon the earth. So this, this whole focus of Jesus on this six months as he comes to Jerusalem, it, it's called Passion Week. Here we are in the, you know, we're getting to the last half now of February. In a few weeks and months, we're going to be heading into Easter. And guess what? You know, we start with Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, Good Friday. This is called Passion Week. Passion Week. In that one week, the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God and the fiery heart of God and the passion of God was manifest and it was fully realized in the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to notice Jesus never told them about the cross without always adding, but on the third day, I will rise from the dead. That's what the Lord wants you to focus on. Not the fact that there's problems in the world. The Lord tells us that's gonna be. That there's going to be these situations that are going to rise. He's just letting you know because that's what's going to happen. But that's not the focus. The focus is on the end. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the goal. Keep your eyes on where we're headed. We're headed to the kingdom of heaven coming right here to planet Earth. Can I hear an amen on that? So Mark tells us in Mark 9, 32, but they, the disciples, did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Not one other human being, not one other spiritual leader, not one other guru, God or whatever could say that. Jesus is alone. There is no other shelf near him. 
He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign, and the Father honors his Son through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? But what I want to... What I want to say is, you know, as Jesus, you know, focuses in on what's coming, because there's, there's going to be some uh, drama and dramatic things happen until we get to the resurrection. So, but Jesus was at peace. Jesus trusted personally, deeply, that gave him peace in his heart. He was absolutely surrendered to his father's plan and to his father's will. And what I want to say to you is when we can't see a plan, maybe you're in a time and a season, we don't always know what God is doing. He's, he's got a lot of things that, that are going on that we cannot see, we cannot imagine. But when you cannot see God's plan in your life, it's important to know God still has a plan. And he is in control. So let me put it as directly and bluntly as I can. You, as a child of God, have nothing to worry about. God is going to bring you to your end. He that began a good work in you will continue it until it's perfect and complete and finished. You and I shall reach the full measure of the stature of Christ because he's going to do that for us. So, but what I want to do is, look, so I acknowledge in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. How can we enter into that mindset of Christ so that though there's trouble and there's challenges, that we have peace within our minds. So I want to just take a few moments and talk about that. We all need to learn how to enter the rest. Did you know that the normal Christian life is to be lived in rest and peace? I'm talking divine peace, supernatural peace that cannot be disturbed, agitated, uh, intimidated by anything from the world or from circumstances. How many of you would love to learn how to tap into that place? It's like a zone. It's a secret place. Psalm 91 verse 1. You know, when we come into the secret place, we abide under the shadow of the Almighty. How, would, how many would like to know that secret place? Learn about it and find it. So I want to share with you one of my favorite scriptures, Psalm 46 verse 10. Let's read this out loud together. Be still and know that I am God. Now, I want to tell you right now that this is one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms, 150 of them, which is really a school in how to have a personal, intimate relationship with God. Most of them were written by David, the psalmist, and the uh, king, and shepherd, and the man after God's own heart. But if you don't have, I, I want you, especially if you're new, if nobody's ever told you, this is one of the biggest ones in the whole book of Psalms. I want you to underline it, circle it, then I want you to memorize it. And I want you to take the truth of this and, and burn it into your mind and heart so that you can meditate on it. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46, 10. Okay, everybody look up at me. Let's say it out loud. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46, verse 10, okay? So here's what I want to share with you. I want to break that down because the Bible is written with words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with words. Words are the expression of the personality, the power, the presence of God. I think it's Proverbs 18, 22, uh, you know, that, that words have the power of life or death. So we need to learn to bring our words into alignment with God's word from Genesis 
through Revelation. Be still and know that I'm God. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to break this down for you a little bit. So I'm going to share three slides with you that are not in your notes. This is not in your notes. So if you see something that speaks to you, connects with you, I want you to write it down because it's not, I didn't have room to put it in your notes. And I want to look at each one of these words. Be still and know that I am God. The word still uh, means to be quiet, means silent, hushed, or subdued, devoid of movement, or being at rest. Now, if no one has ever taught you as, as a Christian that you need to have a daily devotional life, let me be uh, your first pastor to tell you about that. Um, every child of God, I don't care if you're a week old in the Lord or if you've known the Lord for decades, the normal Christian life, this is how you were meant to live, you have to have a daily time of devotion with the Lord where you connect. Jesus modeled it. He got up early in the morning and prayed. He'd go up to a mountain all night and he would pray. And he would seek the Father and pray. And then he would say, well, what are we doing today? Uh, the disciples would ask Jesus. He said, the Father said, we're going to Samaria. We're going here. I go where my Father tells me to go. Jesus was in this daily intimate relationship, walking with his Father, being led by his Father. And there were so many miracles and supernatural things happening. The disciples jealously came and said, man, you got to teach us how to pray like that. And so Jesus began telling them and teaching them prayer. So here's where prayer begins in a daily, there needs to be stillness. It means to be quiet and silent. There needs to be a moment. Look, we read devotions and that's good. I send out you know, emails and daily devotions and there are other devotions that you can have and that's all good. But that is, that's not all. You have to begin, there has to be a place of silence, quiet and stillness. Now, I would say this, we are living in one of the, uh, you know, this is the reality of our times. We're living in one of the most anxious-filled moments of human history. And quite honestly, because of social media, you know, all your friends can find you. They can follow you around. They know where you are. They know what you're doing. And, and they're listening to us. And, you know, and then you get dinged and you feel obligated to keep in touch with everything. So there's a lot of anxiety. How many would admit you have some anxiety? If you're a human being, you have a pulse. You're with me. Okay. Now, my personality is that I'm kind of, you know, I'm a native San Diegan. And I grew up, you know, kind of as a San Diegan. We're, we're kind of known for just being kind of casual and loose and, you know, they make fun of us and, you know, we're always throwing beach balls in the air at Charger games and stuff like that or baseball. But, and so I'm kind of like that. On the surface, I'm easy going. I'm like, they call a traveler. Like, man, come on, let's go. Let's have fun. And let's, I want to bring as many people with me as I can. That's my personality. But I'm also like a duck, just to be honest with you. Like, just calm and gliding on the top. But underneath, <laughs> the little paddles are how many, how many know what I'm talking about? <laughs> how many of you are just like that? Kind of calm, maybe your personality or whatever, but then brrr, a lot of stuff going on underneath. Therefore, the need for being still. It means get quiet, silent, hushed, subdued, devoid of movement, being at rest. You almost have to intentionally tell yourself, take a deep breath. So everybody take a deep breath. <gasps> Let it all out and relax and then get quiet. Now, here's the next one. 
The Hebrew word for still is rafa, which means to be slack or relax or to faint. How do you like that? The way to begin a devotion is just faint with a good cup of coffee or brew of tea, whatever, but you gotta, re- you gotta relax. And sometimes you have to tell your, your brain, relax. You have to talk to your body. We carry all this tension in our shoulders and our backs and our hips and feet and everything else. And, and so be still, the author of this psalm is saying. Relax, faint. <laughs> And then the next word, there's a root word. So that Hebrew word for still is rafa, which means to faint or just totally relax. So that's important. But the root word is rafa, which means to mend by stitching, to cure, to heal, to repair, or make whole. And uh, did you know that one of the names of God is Jehovah Rapha, which interpreted means the Lord is our healer. Now think of what this is saying. Be still and be healed. When you get quiet, the Holy Spirit is given opportunity to work on you. He starts stitching up all the little scars and little things the world has torn you up with. How many of you would love to be stitched up by the Holy Spirit? Mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you got to be still. And the moment that you are still, the Holy Spirit begins to stitch. He begins to cure. He begins to heal. He begins to repair. He begins to make whole. Being still is the beginning of healing. And then be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew word to know there means to know by experience. Okay, so listen. Be still, quiet, relaxed, absolutely hushed, and you will experience God. That's what a daily devotion is all about. Because whenever you have a daily devotion, there's two people in the room wherever you are. There's you and there's the Spirit of God but we can't see him. So we don't realize him and we don't recognize him and we, we just go on with our deal. But, but if you want to connect with and, and experience all the senses, seeing the spiritual, supernatural, hearing and all of that, you have to be quiet. And it's when we get quiet, the Holy Spirit, the other person in the room starts to manifest himself to you. So here's what I suggest, that when you have a daily quiet time, you know, to have a journal or whatever to be ready to hear. Because when God speaks, most of the time, uh, he speaks in a still, small voice. Amen? So he will start speaking to you. When you get quiet, and by the way, New Age has a version of this. They also talk about getting quiet, getting alone, meditating, but often what they teach you is you get still quiet and then empty your mind and then let whatever come comes. Well, usually you empty your mind like that and leave an eraser clean blackboard, demons come or spirits come or weird stuff comes or other spirits come. So we are not to get quiet and still um, and empty our minds. We're to fill our minds, fill your mind with the Lord. Fill your mind with the Lord Jesus. Fill your mind with, with, let God minister to you and speak to you. I also want to say this, uh, that the Bible is filled with things that describe an invisible world. Amen? 
Did you know that you can use your faith and imagination for anything that is described in the Bible? In fact, the Bible says that we focus on those things, not on the things that we can see, but we focus on the things that are not seen with the physical eyes. I want to I encourage you, this is uh, not new age, this is Christianity. I pray in the name of Jesus, God will sanctify your imagination. Did you know that Jesus said, one of the great commandments is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. If you look up the Greek meaning of the word mind, one of the definitions is imagination. So we're not imagining and creating and making up worlds like cartoons. There is real heaven. There's a real throne. There's a real king with a real crown. There is a real glassy sea. There is a real floor that is there before the throne of God. And by faith, we can come and enter that divine throne room. In fact, that's what the Bible says we do. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen? And when you get there, the Holy Spirit will begin coming to you. Now, I want to just say that um, if we're going to commune with God, we must first become still, but stillness isn't the goal. Stillness is the door through which we're able to begin communing and fellowshipping with the Lord, spirit to spirit. I also want to add, being, getting still cannot be rushed, it cannot be hurried, it cannot be forced. It takes a little time but not forever. This is what is called in the Bible, waiting on the Lord. And I want you to know at a certain point in your stillness, where you are filling your mind with all the heavenly realities that are with us as we pray and come before the throne of God, there is a point in your stillness that God begins to take over. And you begin to experience the still small voice of the Lord. And he begins to speak to you and you listen. Many of our prayers are telling God all, we have lists and requests and, and all of that is good, but there needs to come a point where you come and are still and quiet and listen and let him speak and minister to you. And then you, you look, by the time you get to your lists, you will be praying in a different way. You'll be praying if you've listened to the Lord with great confidence and with faith and saying, Lord, I know you've got this, but I just wanna mention them and give them to you in Jesus' name. Your whole prayer life will change. But the Lord wants to manifest himself to you and, and he wants to impart to you supernatural strength. All of a sudden you may, you know, as you're waiting on the Lord, uh, a situation will come up and it's, it's hard to describe, but it's like a download where all of a sudden you, you have, it's, he, he just dumps something upon you and it'll take you a few minutes to kind of go, oh, so that's what's going on in this situation. You'll see it in a way that you had never thought of it or seen it before. And it's almost like divine wisdom is given to you how to approach that situation or that person or whatever. That's what it's like. The Holy Spirit coming, leading you, guiding you, and then you worship him and praise him and then you make your requests known and make your intercessions and God does great and mighty things. So be still, be quiet and experience the living God. Got it? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, let's go on to the next one then. And this is kind of, we're heading to the last part. This is the last story. And this is a fun story and a funny story and a weird story and I can't wait to share it. Okay, verse 24, it says, and when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? 
And Peter answered, for the Lord, yes. <laughs> oh, Peter. Hey, let me just say, we do not need to answer for the Lord. Can I hear an amen on that? But Peter always was. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him and said, hey, Peter, so what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What he's really saying is, as sons, we don't, we don't, we're not obligated to pay taxes because our dad is the king. Can, can I hear an amen on that? We don't really, okay. Okay, we gotta keep reading though. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. How many this morning would love for Jesus to miraculously provide you for your taxes for the year 2018? <laughs> Hallelujah. We have a bunch of fishing poles that we're gonna give them to you as you all leave the service today. No, I'm just kidding. It is interesting, what, what did Matthew do? Uh, what, what was his uh, you know, profession before he was a disciple? Tax collector. Isn't it interesting that only Matthew records this miracle? <laughs> he goes, no, I gotta, I gotta throw that one in. That's, you know, Jesus paying your taxes, that's cool, man. Jesus exercised his kingship over nature. Now, I mean, to think about how did this happen? Peter usually, you know, he was a professional fisherman. That was his living, and so he didn't fish like us, sport fishing. It was with a net, you know, pulling in the fish. But he's, Jesus says, no, take a pole, go out, throw in a hook, and the first fish that bites your hook, open its mouth, and there'll be money inside of it, and it'll pay your taxes and mine. How, how did Jesus know? How did that happen? How did, what was there a little, little, you know, the luckiest fish in the Sea of Galilee, and then somebody drops a coin, you know, from fishing or whatever, and the fish goes, oh, that looks like, and he swallows it, and he goes, man, that doesn't feel right, and it's in his stomach or whatever, and then Peter throws in his hook, and he bites onto it, and then Peter pulls him out, and he gets this gold coin. That's wild. That's God. That's crazy. That's funny. <laughs> Note, this is the only miracle Jesus ever performed to meet his own needs. It is also the only miracle using money. And I think since Matthew was a tax collector, we would expect him to be interested in this miracle. So let's look and pull out a few little life lessons that we can. Number one, a divine lesson here is that God wants to sanctify our work. Now listen to this. Jesus said, verse 27, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. Peter is told to do something that he really enjoyed doing. He was a fisherman. The Lord sent him fishing. In other words, Peter did what he had always done, but now he did it for the glory of God. I wanna say this, for every one of you that has a job that provides your means, has there ever come a point where you made a decision to say, I don't just perform functions and do a job and work at a company and service people for whatever to provide, but I now sanctify my job, Lord, I sanctify my work, and I, I want to do what I do for your glory. There, something will shift in your life. Number one, your enjoyment of what you do, it's got a bigger purpose than just, you know, existing and paying bills. Uh, it, it actually takes on a divine mission and a divine ministry. 
And it also opens the door for God to do some supernatural things in your life. So you may be an engineer. I know we got a lot of people in the health profession and uh, researchers and teachers and professionals and workers of all kinds. Just take a quiet moment right now and say, Lord, I've never heard it that way. Maybe I've never been encouraged this way, but I just want to give you my job. And now I want to do it for you. I want to do it for your kingdom and for your glory. And I believe that supernatural provision will come through that. Here's another lesson. We can become partners in the miraculous. Verse 27 again, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Jesus made bread and fish appear. He could have made a coin appear, but he, he let Peter be in on the miracle. He shares that. And we too can become ministers of miracles in the lives of others. And by the way, the more generous that you are with others who are in need, the more God gets excited and goes, wow, I can trust that dude with money. I can trust that young lady with money and provision because they don't just hold on to it, but they can become a conduit. And the bigger and the more generous your heart or your business or your enterprise becomes, the more God says, wow, uh, I, I got it. God will never let you outgive him. How cool is that? So it's like, oh, so wow, you really provided big. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one-up you, Lord. And he goes, oh, you think, son, you think you can do that? He goes, watch this. How would you like to get into a competition where God's blessing you more than you're trying to bless him? And by the way, I believe that's why many people are blessed in financial areas and means that God wants to use them for his kingdom and glory. Okay, let's go on to the next one. God will provide for all my needs. Let's say that out loud. God will provide for all my needs. Notice, I did not say he will provide all my wants, but all my needs. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. This is another scripture that surely should be noted, underlined, circled, highlighted in your Bible, but let's read it out loud. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. My God shall supply all of your need according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He provides our needs. Notice that, it, that Peter did not catch a whale full of silver and gold coins. He caught a fish with a coin that provided exactly what he needed for that moment just as miraculous. And, and God is, you know, he does the big, he does the little, and he does everything in between. And by the way, this is only one of many miracles that Peter be, was able to partner with or experience the presence of the Lord. Number one, you know, one of the first Bible studies Jesus ever did was at Peter's mother-in-law's house. She was sick and he healed her. And then she was able to get up and serve dinner and have Jesus in their home. How awesome was that? Um, he also helped Peter catch fish. <laughs> I, this, this kills me, but, you know, Peter, the other, they were professional fishermen, but every time they're mentioned in the scriptures, they had been fishing all night and he caught nothing. I think they were lousy fishermen. <laughs> but here's the fun part. So Jesus would then say on several occasions, okay, what, you know, he would be on the shore asking, hey, have you caught anything? The last thing that you want to be asked when you fished all night and caught nothing is, hey, have you caught anything? No. 
So then Jesus would cry out. He said, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Now, if you're a fisherman at all, have we got any fisher lovers of fishing? I love to fish. Usually you fish a place for several you know, hours, six hours, whatever, and you're not just not getting anything. It's like move, move over there. There's some trees or some brush or whatever and, and some you know, lily pads or maybe the fish are hiding over there. You leave. But Jesus says, so they're, they're sitting in this one spot. The boats are only like eight foot wide. The nets have been here all night long. Jesus says, put them on the other side. So what that tells me is on the, only eight feet away, and, and there's so many fish that the, the boats start sinking. Those fish, I think, were waiting on the other side of the boat all night long, waiting. <laughs> the Lord had them all lined up. It was a miracle. And then later when Peter, you know, he's in prison, Jesus sends an angel in, he opens the door and leads him out. So Peter was delivered and participated in the miraculous many, many times. No wonder Peter wrote this in our last scripture. First Peter chapter five, verse seven. Let's read it out loud. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Jesus used, or Peter uses a fishing analogy. He had, he, you cast nets. So Peter likened that to cast your cares. Lord, I'm throwing all my cares and prayers up to you and you will supply, you will fulfill, you will bring everything that I need for you shall supply all my needs according to the riches of your glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. Let's close our Bible. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.